Welcome to Leadership Web, a podcast series from the University of Arkansas that exposes listeners to a wide range of perspectives on leadership. Through interviews with current leaders, Leadership Web strives to provide tools for you to either begin building your own or continue improving your existing leadership framework. We believe that there is no one single path to successful leadership, but that we can all learn from each other on our own leadership journeys. Today, Dr. Andrew Bram and Mrs. Sadie Casillas are joined by Dr. Charles Robinson, Vice Chancellor of Student Affairs at the University of Arkansas. His top seven values are visionary, lead by example, responsible delegator, humility, good communicator, strong listener, and compassionate and empathetic. Hello, everybody. This is Andrew Bram. I'm joined today by Sadie Casillas, who is a graduate student here at the University of Arkansas. And we are pleased to be with Dr. Charles Robinson, who is the Vice Chancellor for Student Affairs here at the University of Arkansas. And Charles, you've had that position since June of 2015. That's correct. I, I began as an interim, but uh, after Joe Steinmetz came, he made me permanent in that in, in this role. Excellent. Well, congratulations. Thank you. You have had quite a distinguished background. Can you go through the steps that got you to where you are today? Because you started in the area of history, correct? That's right. I came to the university in 99 as an assistant professor in history and worked through the faculty, the tenure process, received my tenure, became the director of our African and African American Studies program. And then from there, I became the vice provost for diversity and inclusion under Dave Gerhardt. That position then was promoted to vice chancellor of diversity and inclusion. And I did that for several years until I took on this position permanently. Excellent. Mm -hmm. And now your background is in history. You got your bachelor's of arts from the University of Houston. Yes. Your Master's of Arts from Rice. Yes. Your PhD also from the University of Houston. It's interesting because it looks like you also spent 10 years at the Houston Community College. I did. While I was working on the terminal degree, that's really when I cut my teeth on teaching and really learned how to become, I think, a proficient teacher. It was a great experience. Also learned the history. I mean, one way to learn history is to teach it (laughs) uh, because you have to know it at a certain level to be able to communicate it effectively. Absolutely. Hmm. So what are some of the similarities and differences that you saw between Houston Community College and the University of Arkansas? It's a good question. I think, first of all, there are more similarities than differences. You have students across the spectrum. I think at the community college, it's a wider spectrum. Mm -hmm. You have some students extremely bright and extremely well-prepared and then those less well-prepared. At the University of Arkansas, the same is true, except that the students are generally better prepared because of our you know, entrance requirements. The community college didn't have its open enrollment. But in terms of how I approached the, the teaching, it was pretty much the same. A good teacher is responsive to the classroom. So the makeup of the classroom in terms of the gender breakdown, the kind of regional react breakdown, where the students come from, will affect a history professor's approach to some extent. 
because what you're trying to do is to make the history real and relevant. It's not just enough to be able to cite the important actual reality, but how is it relevant to the students? That's critical to really create that strong teaching and learning environment that you, we all hope for every time a class starts. Absolutely, and I really like how you, when I heard you talking about the communication with students, that comes to one of the values that you've provided for us, which is a good communicator. Yes. Yeah. And you gave an example in the classroom of the importance of good communication. What are some other examples that you may have about how you used good communication as one of your leadership traits? Well, I strive to be a good communicator because it's the way to disseminate important information, which of course helps people feel that they are valued within the organization, that they know what's happening, what's going on, they can contribute to the direction of the organization. And so being a good communicator is just critical in laying the foundation for, I think, effective leadership. I mean, people need information. They need information that is directly communicated, and they even need information that is communicated in nonverbal ways that supports the sense that they're connected to the organization and there's value in what we're trying to accomplish, and they are part of that effort to uh, really tease out that value, make it relevant to students particularly. When you were talking about communication, I see that as a two-way street, though, because someone can be communicating very clearly, but I think that people on the other end also has to be listening. Yeah. And that's another value that you provided as a strong listener. Often when people see a leader in a leadership role and they hear that communication coming down, I think sometimes it doesn't always click that there is that other direction. Oh, absolutely. And I don't think you can be a good communicator without trying to be a good listener as well because what you communicate, how you communicate, is a dynamic between you and other people. One other point about being a good communicator, it's not, just, it's not sufficient to just be a good in terms of your personal skill you have to establish the processes or at least support the processes that allow for information to flow more smoothly and if you figure out that you've got a kind of communication gap somewhere in your bureaucracy then you've got to close that gap you've got to work through it so you don't you have to be an architect of it too it's not just the ability to disseminate uh, effectively to, you know, in, because we're in an English-speaking country to know the king's English, you have to also be a person who sets up the structure or at least promotes the structure in such a way that information is flowing mm -hmm. and people feel like they have some awareness of the direction that the organization is trying to go. So would you say that you feel like being a good communicator, it sounds like you're saying it hinges very closely to being very relational. Yes. with people as well. So how do you think that ties into your values of being compassionate and empathetic? Yeah, you know, one of the things that people, I think they work better for any enterprise when they, when they feel like the, the leader really cares about them and, you know, cares about their particular circumstances, their challenges. And when they feel free to communicate those, then you've really got something going that's positive there that helps the organization. So valuing people, 
we just can't underscore that enough. I mean, and it, you have to demonstrate that valuing, and usually it's through good, strong, regular communication, uh, and and or listening. Again, the the dynamic is constantly going, and you can't have, uh, I think, a, a strong organization unless people feel like they are valued within it, regardless of their responsibility. No responsibility is too small to be valued. Uh, no responsibility is so great that it's above all others. I mean, I think when you don't close the sense that some people are more important than others, then you work against the notion of value and everybody can be valued in the roles that they're playing. So it does sound like, though, that everyone only has a plate that's so big and we all have more than enough tasks to, to fill that plate. So a big part of, I think, this being a good communicator is also recognizing the things that you're able to do with your time and your resources yeah. versus things that you feel like other people can be able to also contribute with, which goes to the fourth value of yours, the responsible delegator. Yes, yeah. right. So and you just can't do it all as a leader. Yeah. I mean, you just don't have the time, the energy, the ability. The reason why people are in different roles is because they have a responsibility but they need to be empowered in, in their roles and they need to be given the sense that it's okay to make a mistake. Actually, a mistake that is made in pursuit of improving a process or better supporting students is a good mistake. Uh, I think people need to have a sense that you know when they're given the responsibility, they also have the authority to actualize, to carry out a task. and. We should try to mitigate fear uh, that you know mistakes are going to be made. That, that the mistakes are part of the human condition, and and that leads to another you know uh, I think value that I have. Leaders who own their mistakes can have a powerful impact on an organization's ability to think outside of the box and and to get people thinking outside of the box. Uh, and if you don't own your mistakes as a leader, then people are going to think within a narrow framework. Let's just do it the way it's always been done because that's the safest way. And so now, would you mind sharing an example of a mistake <laughs> you've made? You kind of set us up really easily yeah. for that, uh, but because because I agree. I mean, I make mistakes sure. in my job on a regular sure. basis, but sure. I really like how you're saying it's just important to own up to them, learn from them, and then the group can move together as a whole. Some some mistakes are made on assumptions that you you make about well, if we do something a certain way if you have a plan uh, of action and you've made assumptions about well if we handle it this way this is the way it'll go and if you assess the plan and then you realize that well some of the, this was my assumption making that was not accurate uh, then I think that that's uh, something that you should own as a leader and I've done that I've made assumptions some of the mistakes have been made about understanding well enough the culture of, of something. For example, I remember when I first became vice provost for diversity and I asked a, a faculty member in Fulbright College if he would join me and be kind of a faculty ambassador. I never contacted the dean of the college to, you know, as a courtesy. Mm -hmm. And uh, the dean was really nice and he contacted me saying, well, Charles, I just, you know, in the future it might be good to just let me know and he was right. I mean, I should have let him know. I just didn't think about it. And 
and to own that and not to feel, you know, that, you know, to be uh, bothered by the fact that he gave me a gentle reminder. I think that people need to know that that's okay. And my team here, I feel, have a sense that if they come to me and say, well, Charles, you weren't quite right on this point or that point, then it's okay. I'm not bothered by it. Actually, I appreciate it because it helps me to move forward with the right information and not to go, you know, go off of, uh, you know, poor assumptions or, or poor data. I think that's interesting and, and potentially ties into a value of yours. You said lead by example. And I think your ability to own mistakes that you feel you've made allows other people to recognize that you very much so believe and act on the idea that you no know, people are perfect. So how do you feel like you are able to encourage your team and your people to also receive criticism well and to own their mistakes? So it's kind of a two-way street where you're able to really give each other feedback. Right. I think it goes back to how I respond to you know, feedback that's less than positive that may be about me. You know, in the evaluation every year, I ask folks that I evaluate to please talk about some ways that I could better support them. I mean, if you get responses, which I do, which talk about ways, and they're suggesting that that probably wasn't done as well as they would, they think it either could be or they'd like to see. And so I think, again, a regular dialogue, interaction, communication, one in which people feel in human engagement, we're, we're talking so much that we're going to t- talk sometimes about ways that things can be done differently. And that is not necessarily in and of itself a bad thing. Worst thing is to have information that should have been shared and wasn't shared because that's avoidable. That's, that, it really is. I mean, now sometimes we make mistakes on whether or not we thought we needed to share it. But I would say, in that case, err on the side of sharing. And if you share, you know, you reduce the likelihood that that'll be a criticism, that you just weren't transparent enough with, uh, you know, the people who were necessary to the particular task to get something done. Charles, I I liked how we asked you for five leadership values and you came back with us with seven. Yeah. (laughs) Which I I think that's fantastic because it is hard to take all of these different I'm things. sure I could have given you more, too. <laughs> I was just trying to stay true to the request. <laughs> but but, but I, I love it, and I appreciate that. But I think what's interesting is this is going back to an article I read in the Harvard Business Review called In Praise of the Incompetent Leader. So for people listening, if, if you're interested in learning more about leadership, the Harvard Business Review has many different books, right. compendium of books that are excellent resources for learning more more tools and this article in praise of the incompetent leader came up with four areas that they felt that leaders should be strong in and they they say that leaders are generally strongest in one to two of them but these are the four areas we should achieve for the first is sense making which is understanding the context of operations the second is relating which is building relationships across and within organizations. The third is visioning, creating a compelling picture of the future. And the fourth is inventing, developing new ways to achieve vision. And just in our conversation so far, I've heard you talk a lot about sense-making, which is understanding the content. You've given us multiple anecdotes about 
what context it was in when you may have made a mistake and how you've adjusted that in the future. You've talked a lot about relating, this concept of building relationships, because I think relating is 100% critical on the communicating and the listening. No, no question about that. But now the sixth leadership quality you gave us was visionary, which is very close to visioning. So how do you tie visionary into your, your suite of leadership qualities? To be a leader should suggest to some extent that you're thinking about this organization in ways that other people may not be. And it should be, you know, how can I make this organization more effective in achieving its its goals? And one of the things I feel pretty good about my uh, time as an administrator is that I have been involved in the creation of programs uh, and also the execution, but, but largely the creation of programs that were designed to meet a particular need that the university had relative to students. And that's visionary. I've talked to people about, and you know, when I had no money, uh, which is the University of Arkansas experience, right, as an administrator, or as a faculty member so, <laughs> as well. And, and I would say, you know, let's, let's just dream together for a minute. What would it take, what would it be if we did X, Y, and Z to ad address this problem. You have to be, I think, as a, an effective leader, someone who can look at the organization in a broad way and think about particular challenges and come up with uh, new ideas or at least throw them out there for discussion or create an environment in which your leadership team is you know, creating new ideas and that will help to move the organization forward. I mean, I really do think it's one of those distinguishing qualities. I mean, they're, they're leaders who are not particularly strong there. They're good at organizing or managing existing structures. But I think special leaders are visionary. They help to create new ideas and then they responsibly delegate to ensure that there's a facilitating of those ideas in a way in which people feel like we've got a chance with this. Let's try it. It's, you know, it may not work, but we're not afraid to try it because it's good for the organization to try something like this that seems to have the elements that can push us forward. So, and, and then that's tied in with that inventing. You're not just thinking about it, but you're actually working with some of the technical aspects of it to bring it to fruition. I'll give you an example. Uh, when I was in diversity, there was a need, I felt, to do something about the challenges, one of the huge challenges of underrepresented students coming to the University of Arkansas, which was the ACT. ACT is a barrier. 20 is what we require as a minimum, and, and many students, particularly those in the African-American uh, community in Arkansas, average was 16. And really, it was ACT is about what the, the person's being taught, K through 12, to some extent, but it's also familiarity with the tests. So we created the College Access Initiative. Again, I had no money. And, and I decided what I'd do is go to the various deans and talk about what we were trying to do. And every single one of them gave money in support of this because they were just happy to see that we had a plan for trying to really deal with this issue of getting more underrepresented students and eventually the chancellor gave money to permanently fund it. And so now it's a unit that operates on our campus. 
uh, regularly and we go throughout the state and we do training to students for the ACT and you know we tell them they can go anywhere but of course we're wearing our University of Arkansas shirts and giving them you know U of A swag and encouraging them to come here we have an ACT Academy every summer on this campus again that was something that was created by uh, my team and me back in, the, in 2009 2010 with the idea of trying to deal with a problem that we felt we had in attracting more underrepresented students to this campus so envisioning what needs to be done and then working through the details and it's been a pretty successful uh, unit that's one reason why we actually got the hard funding for it it would be hard to imagine the University of Arkansas not having a, a unit that did ACT training across the state now because so many communities are accustomed to seeing our facilitators coming in and helping their students. I was reading a Newswire article that was put out when you were first moved up to your new role Vice Chancellor of Student Affairs and you talked about you know the forward momentum that you've been able to build for students in regards to diversity but to continue building upon that momentum we were going to have to have a holistic commitment from students, from faculty, from staff and that's a, a huge challenge, I think. So how do you feel like you've been able to go about building or changing that narrative surrounding concepts of diversity to allow people to really value it rather than viewing it as something that we're kind of putting in a box? Yeah, when I was in that role, I like to talk about diversity from the context of uh, not just ethnicity but also the first generation low income reality. I mean you capture ethnicity disproportionately in that in, in those arenas. But you also I think include white communities in that conversation so that they come to understand that diversity does not exclude white Arkansans. And that that there are many Arkansans regionally at the university that they would constitute this diversity. And so to get behind diversity is really getting behind supporting students from poor communities having access to the University of Arkansas. So I tried to change it from just the ethnic lens, which I think predated it, to more of a, what I think an inclusive lens that dealt with socioeconomic realities that affect the ability of students to get here and then affect them to stay here. So it's really tied to that student success retention mm -hmm. emphasis that the chancellor currently has. And then I also talked about the business proposition of diversities. And again, this is something that's often lost, that for every 100 students we add to this campus, regardless of their ethnicity uh, and geographical background, that's about a million dollars of added revenue. A million dollars of added revenue helps everybody. So if we get behind diversity and we're able to see because in these ethnic communities, we see that 18 to 24 year olds are disproportionate in their numbers in this state are greater than those populations in this state, then we, we have an opportunity to grow our market share. And growing our market share helps everybody, helps uh, you know, faculty to have wage increases and staff, and also uh, helps our research areas because we can direct some of those funds to research it helps auxiliaries because we have more students living in housing, so fewer empty beds. There's so many reasons to get behind diversity that are tied to the functionality, the proper functioning the, uh, of the university. And remember, we're a land-grant institution. Part of our mission, a major part of it, is to be the institution for all people in the state of Arkansas. So far, we've gone through six-year leadership qualities 
good communicator, strong listener, compassionate and empathetic, responsible delegator. I think one of the facts inherent being a good responsible delegator is to know your team. You have to take time to really get to know your team beyond their compartmentalized role. Because then people have multiple skills and you may if you come in as a, you know, say a chancellor, you may come in, this person's in student affairs, this person's academic affairs, but you may come to find that somebody on your team has the ability to, you know, do a variety of different things. I think when you compartmentalize, you limit the opportunity that you have to responsibly delegate team members. When you, when you say to people, you can only be part of this meeting because it seems to just fit your role, then you're limiting the brain power uh, that could be used towards trying to deal with some challenge that we have. So responsible delegation, the deeper dive is to really examine and come to know your team members that you're going to delegate for a variety of, of responsibilities. You have to know them and their temperaments and their tendencies and their special skills. Yes. Yeah. And I think that kind of sets the stage nicely for the last quality you, you shared with us, which is humility. And in, in my mind, the fact that these concepts are on your mind and that you evaluate them and go through decisions based on these, that shows that you do show humility in your role. Could you just share some of that in the, the lens of your leadership qualities? I don't see how you can be effective and not really manifest humility. I mean, I, I know you, you can have some successes, but to be fundamentally effective, how, how can you t talk to people and convince them that they matter, but you're focused on you? I mean, the whole idea to, in being a leader should be to focus on the people who are part of the organization or the, the constituency that you're trying to positively affect. And so humility, to me, is... Is, is a must. Now, I, trust me, I've run across a number of leaders who do not put that as uh, one of their priorities. But I have felt that that has been usually one of their uh, challenges. Like, how do you, how do they, they could be better with if they could manifest some humility. Humility means you're putting the others in your organization ahead of you when you talk about the success of programs. Humility means you sit down at a table and you're having conversation. You don't fall in love with the sound of your own voice. What you really want are the other voices, and you and you you have to keep pushing for that because as a as a leader, people are in they are inclined to just take notes. I don't want just like I never wanted a class that just took notes. I wanted a class to contribute to the teaching learning. I want a staff that says, "No, Charles, I think you're wrong." Here's how I think we need to look at this. That's how you become better as an organization, and it takes humility. So I may be the vice chancellor for student affairs, but it doesn't mean that I have the best ideas all the time for how we should deal with an issue. It doesn't mean my ideas matter more than everybody else's. What I have to do is not only demonstrate that in terms of my own personal behavior, but try to build a culture in which people say, oh, you can talk to Charles about that. He, uh, he will appreciate you coming to him and talking to him about something that might be a little difficult mm -hmm. or challenging. So 
I think it really is like a foundational quality for all these others. You have to have real humility and understand you weren't born vice chancellor. So you were appointed or or you were named because of some process and at some at some point you won't be vice chancellor. And so the goal should not be just for self-aggrandizement. It should really be about how can I do make this operate better? How can we support students better? And at the end of the day, that's going to take more than just my ideas in order for us to, to do it at, at the highest levels. Fantastic. Do you have any last advice, any last words that you'd like to share with the undergraduate listening population and others that are listening that revolve around the concept of leadership? To be a, a good leader, I think you have to develop these skills. Like, you know, these, you, some people are born with certain natural tendencies, but you have to be, I think, very direct in trying to develop the skills. You have to say, this is how I want to get better in, the, in these, you know, identify some areas and get better. Uh, one of the things, um, you know, students, particularly poor students uh, who come here don't realize is that networking is extremely important. Yes, we want you to go to the class, we want you to study real hard, but that is not sufficient. It is important to, to network, and as you network, you should be working on these skills. I mean, that is in and of itself, if done properly, leadership skill development because you're trying to learn more, connect with people, communicate more effectively who you are and what you you think you might, what help you might need in order to, to move forward, so. Fantastic, well thank you so much for your time. Thank we you appreciate for it. the interview, thanks. Thank you for joining Leadership Web today. We hope that you found insight and guidance on leadership tools from this interview. Please join Leadership Web in two weeks as we explore another leader's leadership journey. Also, follow us on Instagram or LinkedIn by searching Leadership Web.